Welcome back to our podcast within a podcast, pottering around the series of ill-conceived plans of Mangum Reads. We are three muggles who would pay a lot of money to see Luna and Neville in a tag team match against Malfoy and Pansy. My name is Sarah. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, BJ and Spencer. How are you all doing? As I've often said, if that isn't a side short story that's been released at some point, just <laughs> depicting that throwdown, there's money <laughs> being left on the table. Because, good God, did I want to see that happen. Uh, yeah, I, I would, when you only see the aftermath. <laughs> I, just, them just showing up smug is among my favorite parts of the book so far, <laughs> much less actually seeing it happen. It's kind of interesting how much, what, what action is on screen, as it were, and what action is off screen. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm sort of curious what the movie uh, ends up doing with a lot of the on versus off screen action, because it would be like, you know, it's are you following the main three uh, as opposed to anything else or are you expanding? Um, and now I feel like I, I should look up uh, when the movies came out versus the books because this kind of feels like, all right, well, we have other characters that people like and yeah. I guess I should write about them. Um, and so they become more prominent in the stories rather than bit characters so we'll see i'm curious yeah so we are on the 33rd chapter of the fifth book of harry potter fight and flight um <laughs> we have some segments that we do here we have a rapid fire recap for a rapid fire chapter i might add mm-hmm. this time around uh we have bj's wizard wheezes newbie's notes with spencer we award house points and then there are questions and queries uh and qualms and quibbles uh and we might have all of those this chapter. We we'll might say. have all of those this chapter. Uh, BJ, we have finally gotten to the chapter that you have been making jokes about for four and a half books at this point. So I, I'm still here for it. Do we have two <laughs> or three of the Fs? I mean, we have fight and flight. I don't know. Yeah, this I don't. I think you're show. Like in your own head about this, and but, I like you are manufacturing evidence where none exists. So. I, I this is not a theory that I came up with. I know it's not, but I think that you have latched onto it with a particular type of glee that is specific to you. What? It is. Now, now finally understanding BJ's references since the first friggin' book, <laughs> we will unquestionably talk about this topic. It but is before we get there, deeply annoying. Yes. Sarah, this chapter, at least according to Kendall, is half the length of the last like three or four chapters we've yeah. read. Do you have a bet? No, I'm not going to do a bet chapter? because short chapters and I are notoriously and Mortal historically uh, yeah, difficult. So just under two minutes, uh, we're just going to get this done and move on, Spencer. Understood. Stopwatch is ready. That's how they feel about Umbridge. <sighs> Stopwatch is ready for the love of God. Please go. Harry hopes Hermione has a plan as they make their way out the front doors and towards the Forbidden Forest, Umbridge asking all sorts of dim questions on the way. Harry tries to get Umbridge's wand as they're 
as they're going in first, but that's a non-starter, and Harry gets more and more concerned as Hermione leads them deeper and deeper into the forest. Uh, but she's sure about what she's doing, and she wants to be heard. Finally, an arrow pierces the forest, heralding the arrival of dozens of centaurs. Umbridge is terrified, Hermione thrilled. Megorian questions Umbridge, who tries to hide behind her titles in the Ministry of Magic, but that, coupled with her liberal use of the terms half-breed and near-human intelligence, enrages the centaurs. More arrows fly, and Umbridge lashes out with an incarcerous spell, sending ropes around Megorian to try to bind him. The the centaurs charge, Harry and Hermione hit the floor. Umbridge tries to stun them, but she sees a centaur snaps her wand, and Umbridge is carried away into the forest. The centaurs haven't forgotten about Harry and Hermione, though. They are not so young as foals to be let free, and Hermione's explanation goes sideways when it comes out that they were trying to manipulate them into dealing with Umbridge for them. They're threatening to have them join Umbridge when something shows or crashes through the forest behind them, Grop. He's broken free looking for Hagrid and catches sight of Hermione, determining that she must know where he is. He reaches for Harry and the centaurs start launching arrows at their hands, at, at his hands. Uh, centaurs and Grop's, Grop distracted. Harry and Hermione take off towards the castle. Harry's starting to become aware of just how much time has passed since his vision about Sirius, but they can't go anywhere without wands. And how will they get to London anyway? Is that Ron, Jenny, Neville, and Luna's music? They fought their way out from Malfoy and crew and are ready to come to the ministry with them, just try to tell Jenny she isn't. They'll have to fly, and given the lack of broomsticks, they'll have to fly the Thestrals. They'll need six of, six of them, which shouldn't be a problem, because Harry and Hermione are covered in blood. The Thestrals made their way to them. With plenty of extra time. Plenty of extra time. Yes. Uh, short chapter. Mm-hmm. A sort of... Short recap. Things are moving chapter. Mm-hmm. This is very much in the category... It's a transition chapter. We've had many of these... Um, I mean, I get, gotten, yeah, it, it is a transition chapter, but like, I don't know that we can just qualify it as a transition chapter. Like, real things happened here. That that is fair. Uh, <laughs> that is very much fair. But it but it's I feel like this is in the realm of why were the chapters split up this way? Um, I don't know what happens next chapter, but like this feels like a all right, we're going to end on a cliffhanger, and now you have to go to bed um, kind of chapter. Well, it's interesting because we've talked before about several other chapters in this book have been very action-packed, but then did not end with the action or were only about the action. Like, the mm-hmm. chapter where Dumbledore, quote-unquote, reveals himself to the Ministry and then, you know, yeah. disappears sure. in a, a puff of smoke and fire. We had a lot of lead-up before that happened. This chapter, like, like you said, BJ, is just that action scene cutting off everything else and then putting it out. It's, it's a different structure we've seen a lot of the action chapters in this book where there's either a lead up or a lead down and the action isn't the sole focus. So, Sarah, you uh, surprised me in, in your recap. I expected is that Grop's music rather than the, the whole crowd. So, I don't know. I mean, we've got a lot of people like entering into scenes and disappearing from scenes in this chapter, all of whom could have their own entrance music, but... A little more intentionality, I think, is required to, to have entrance music announced in the recap. Uh, Hermione's plan here is that wonderful mix of half-brilliant and stupid as hell. Of where it seems to be, bring them into the centaur's domain, they'll sort the, they'll sort the situation out, and they won't hurt us because the one prior data point I have is that they don't hurt folks. Mm-hmm. She seems to be leaving out the element of, that was argued heavily at the time... Specifically with respect to you two, with the profound implication of, this is your warning. Start there. But even if we, you know, ignore that certain element of maybe desperation or, you know, limited evidence logic that's at play here, 
if she just stuck to that and then kept to some narrative of, and she brought made us bring her here. Yep. She forced us to intervene in your territory. We didn't want to do it. We warned her not to. There would have been hope. Instead, we have to rely on giant ex machina because otherwise, I don't think any element of just, you know, civilization was going to apply to their treatment in this moment. They were headed towards a straight up lynching I, of some shape or form. I love, I love this chapter. I love the, like, I love the parallel between, like, Umbridge being obviously terrible um, and obviously more than problematic um, towards non-human creatures. But we've been dancing around and talked a little bit about the topic of, like, Hermione's approach to non-human human creatures. It's, it's a sort of certain type of liberalism that mm-hmm. um, still believes that they really can't figure things out for themselves, like her constant knitting of hats for the house elves and taking up on their behalf uh, when they have no need of any such thing. And this sort of like manipulation of, of the centaurs as well. Like it's, it's just such an, it's weirdly, it's a, it's an interestingly nuanced read on the treatment of non-humans. I, I really appreciate the parallels of it. It, it. it is fascinating to see that from two very different perspectives and with two different, very different intents, they are both speed running the ways that you press centaur buttons. Mm-hmm. And coming from place of ignorance, place of malevolence, who can say either way? But it's demonstrating a fundamental lack of understanding and a fundamental lack of putting in the effort to understand. Which, as you said, for money, it's very much an indictment of a certain kind of ivory tower liberalism that's just looking on this of, oh, I know best about how to help them. I understand them from all of the one time that I met them. I am very much ready to counter and deal with the situation because my heart is in the right place. Forgetting, as these guys have pointed out, that they are a proud, self-focused people that don't really give a shit about your well intent. No. They care about a fundamental aspect of disrespect that you're tapping into through your just casual callousness. Yeah. Um, and the, the centaurs, I, I can't remember who it was specifically, if it was Megorian or I feel like it might have been Megorian um, because that's the one we get the most specific interaction with over the yeah. course of this chapter, but kind of calls that out on the sort of like, when you thought we were just pretty horses, like... Um, Ferenz, it was one thing, mm-hmm. but that's not the reality of the situation. Um, getting to and this sort of like, how much can Hermione and, and other people at Hogwarts fit them into a specific narrative they already have about them? Umbridge's speciesism is on full display in this chapter Ooh. to a degree that the filter's off. There's no, there's no, there's no effort made for the sake of decorum here anymore. Hagrid is the half-breed oaf. Centaurs are half-breeds and or uncontrolled animals or of near-human intelligence. That's it's the one that really out. got to them, too, I think, right? I mean, it, it, one thing I don't think either... Um, well, Umbridge particularly, she has, no, she has no point of reference, but I don't even think Hermione also gets it, too, is that Megorian's your one hope in this conversation of baking it out alive, and when he's getting set off, the hope is lost. He's the closest thing we have to a certain element of disciplined leadership attached to this, and you're hitting all of his institutional buttons. Uh, what wasn't... I don't know if it's been, a, been apparent previously, and I'm curious if your guys' thoughts on it, but Umbridge's cowardice is also just laid out bare in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Of where... I, I, don't, I don't feel it's been... Maybe that hasn't just had the same opportunities to be apparent, but 
using Harry just from the first opportunity as a human shield, and ultimately inciting the centaurs to attack more out of sheer terror than anything else, it seems like, from the moment. I'd also tie in there as well, and I think this is more foundational with Fudge. I agree that Fudge kind of looks at Harry as being an innocent pawn in other people's games, but I think it's also part of what's putting him and really just the Ministry at odds with each other, Harry and the Ministry, is that Harry is wrapped up in Voldemort. Yeah. Every aspect of Harry is tied to Voldemort and Voldemort coming back, and that's something the Ministry just can't allow to become part of the narrative. So it, and that's it something thinks, like Fudge specifically can't allow to become part of the narrative yes. because like his basis of power is only on being a peacetime mm-hmm. leader. PM. Umbridge just seems to only have an 11. She doesn't have any nuance. She doesn't that's have true. any ability to respond to a situation that demonstrates a certain element of long-term thinking or control. Her response is, I have a hammer and the world is only nails. I think, I think that's part of it too. Um, and to your question about sort of her cowardice in this um, in this chapter, Spencer, I mean, this is the first time that we have seen her stripped of all institutional armor, right? Mm-hmm. And she tries to summon it from the very beginning in that, yeah, and that really backfires on her. You know, I don't know, I don't know if we talked about it um, or if it even really appeared in the in the books, but one of the kind of memes that goes around um, about Harry Potter that I um, that I actually really love is two images from the movies. One is the scene of Umbridge throwing Harry in front of her as a shield in this scene. And the other is of Snape putting Harry and Hermione behind him from the third book <laughs> when Lupin turns into a werewolf. Um, and so that, you know, who are our real villains Yeah, we here? get we get some... I mean, jury's out on, like, where Snape is actually going to fall in this whole thing. But, like, in that moment, <laughs> he was he was protecting Harry and Hermione. Snape is on the more angry side of, anti, of anti-hero, the more bitter side of anti-hero. But he's ultimately a hero. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna do the thing that helps people. I'm This is me newbies noting right here. This is my own impression <laughs> of the character. That he does, he's not going to be happy about it. He's going to write some very angry posts on his live journal about it later on the subject of you know what he went through in terms of helping out this just spoiled little brat of a kid. I'm so into Snape saying he absolutely has his anger, and I'm so into it. You know he does. Oh, I feel um, I feel like McGonagall has a live journal. I'm showing my own age here, people. I'm trying. I'm trying to do it. Um, moving on, Harry is acting as if his scar is a perfect barometer of everything that Voldemort does so that he can exactly approximate what actions are occurring at any given moment. Uh, to use the cool kid lingo that we learned last episode, I call that sus. (laughs) That, I don't think it's a lie. I just find it very, I, I think, I think there is a certain element of it, but he's treating it as if it's an exact science in a way that I have all grounds to doubt about. Particularly, if even if it were an exact silence, it's one your enemy knows about, and he can put his thumb on the scale wherever he needs to. Uh, 50 centaurs. 50. 50 is a lot of centaurs. It's a lot of centaurs. It's not like they walked into the middle of whatever the centaur base camp is, or village, or whatever else. This is just 50 centaurs on patrol. There are a lot of centaurs in this forest. 
I, I'm not calling it horseshit. It's just emphasizing again. I have no concept of either how big the centaur community is, or particularly how big the forbidden forest is to accommodate the centaur community. This forest may be the size of Scotland for all I know. <laughs> Uh, we talked about Umbridge and Hermione and their lack of understanding. Uh, Grop to the rescue is... I kind of anticipated that's how we'd get out of the scene. I was not anticipating how gory it would be. It's like, there's been violence in these books before, but it's been of that nice, you know, 1960s cowboy movie kind of bloodless violence to a you know, 50s cowboy movie, bloodless violence. This is, we get straight up descriptions of 50 ear arrows piercing Grop's face and blood pouring out of him to the point that Thestrals are going to lick it off Hermione and Harry later. Because I sure. also get the impression that, like, Grop was more annoyed at being hit by these arrows than, like, actually in real and specific pain from it. 100%. This is in no way a lethal blow, nor is that in any way suggested in the text. No. We do, however, get descriptions of the text of him breaking off the halves and the arrow points digging deeper That's into true. his skin. This is still... This this is a cosmetic injury. It is still that gruesome category of cosmetic injury. Yep. Uh, also, it turns out, and again, in the category of our heroes did not bother to check, ask, or even this, offer even the chance of assumption that this could be the case... Grop is an intelligent, observant creature that has some degree of interpersonal caring. To the point even remembered Hermione's name after one, you know, meeting of mm -hmm. her. Uh, perhaps he has some difficulty in expressing it in a healthy manner, or maybe has no frame of reference on, you know, how one would even do so, given his prior cultural background. But this should again be emphasizing that our characters don't care to learn. <laughs> it's, it's also notable... In terms of things that surprised me in a way that I, I didn't like this as much, the fact the centaurs are surprised that he's there, I, I have a harder time believing. This is their forest. He's not that far away. They seem flabbergasted that there was a giant roaming around the Forbidden Forest in a way that it fits the scene. It didn't fit for me necessarily the world as much. Well, they knew he was in the forest. Did they? Yeah, they knew Hagrid was keeping him there. Like, they confronted Hagrid about it when Hagrid took... The, the, Harry and Hermione okay. to meet him. Uh, I remember that now. Mm -hmm. so they're, they're surprised he's out. Yeah, yeah. Again, this was a system that Hagrid worked out, people. How long did you think it was going to work before there was massive destruction? Uh, we, we emphasize that I, I don't think Umbridge is going to be okay, and I'll be really kind of curious to find out how she is going to be okay. I'm almost expecting some degree of direct intervention by either Ferenz or the, or the actual, you know, Hogwarts itself, because otherwise... I don't know why the centaurs would leave her alive. They don't care about ministry reaction to this. If anything, they want to kind of send a message to the ministry with this. So I expect she lives. I just, at this moment, I'm waiting for a logical way that that could occur. Uh, we, we, we referenced it, but the, the, the pack of friends just being so utterly smug with themselves and having, you know, got themselves out of the dangerous situation and are now here to rescue our main characters. Like, if, if Harry and Hermione had just waited outside the Forbidden Forest and done nothing for, like, another 20 minutes, they wouldn't have had to go do anything with the centaurs. The, the whole gang would have come in and saved them, is the implication I'm getting from this. Uh, also, this was the thought that occurred to me. Madame Pomfroy is our medic, right? Mm -hmm. She's our nurse doctor. She seems like she has an almost purposefully limited perspective on events that are occurring, other than knowing that Umbridge is a shit. Everything's associated with medical. From her perspective... The Slytherins in, are just getting abused nonstop in this book. Because <laughs> she's just getting a nonstop stream of casualties of people just uh, 
hurt and manipulated in all kinds of unique ways. And now a whole other crop of them is coming to join her here shortly. Uh, Harry is presenting to his friends here that there is concrete, unassailable evidence on the subject of his uncle being in possession of Voldemort. Harry, your evidence is a series of dreams that you've been warned about from the entire book, the entirety of this book, are easily manipulatable by the enemy, hence why you need to be able to control and limit your exposure to them, and commentary offered by creature. That's it. That's what we're basing our conclusions off of. At least acknowledge that there couldn't be there could be a certain element of forced perspective that's going into this. But it's Harry. He can't do that. He's con- convinced of the unassailability of his own of his of his own views of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about yeah. I, I think we had a wonderful discussion on the subject of our heroes struggle with not doing everything themselves and letting other people into the, you know the heroic trio. So don't go into more of that. But I need to make more of a note for myself of how much J.K. Rowling likes Chekhov's guns and that she does not introduce anything unless it's going to come up later. And I should have assigned more weight to Thestrals coming back into the story. Thestrals become weirdly important. <laughs> I, I do... I, I also still just love... I, it's just something I just generally like in fantasy. I love the contrast between something looking demonic and just eating flesh and also being imminently helpful. It's always a fun mix in my mind of where these things are straight up horses out of hell. That's just what they are. But they're also here. To, they're also here to make to make it so it's even possible you can get to the next stage of the plot. I also like that when they start licking Harry, it's like a very they they seem like cats. It seems like a very gentle sort of. From from their perspective, it's no different if someone left out a salt lick for a mm-hmm. it's, it's very much, they have just gently come over and they are here to enjoy the treat. Mm-hmm. The treat is giant blood, so, you know, soaked into, cor- into corduroy, but they're here for it. Based on the descriptions, too, I'm also picturing, like, these long lizardy tongues that are kind of coming out and flicking on the Yeah, that's too. true. Yep. Uh, but finishing up Newbie's notes, Sarah... Who won and who lost this chapter? Can we agree or in advance who the loser is? I think is? we have one loser. Uh, Umbridge obviously loses this chapter. To a degree, we don't even know how much she's lost. Yeah, yet. we'll find out more. Yeah, later. we are only left to ponder magnitude. Um, winner is, you know, I think that we have a, I think we have a case for Hermione because her on-the-fly plan actually sort of worked. Mm-hmm. I think we have a case for any of our secondary characters who are just so pleased with themselves. Um, and I think the strongest case for them is probably Jenny because she does end up getting her way at the end of this chapter to the extent that the Thestrals are coming out of the out of the woodwork to facilitate this plan. Yeah, I think there's, there is a good argument to be made that, as you referred to them, our secondary characters of Jenny Neville and Luna are forcing themselves into a primary stage, yeah. and they're doing so successfully, with compelling arguments about, you know, Jenny's saying, Harry, I was, I'm was i older now than you were when you started this whole thing, when you were straight up killing Voldemort in various ways, and a professor, let's not forget about that. Uh, Neville pointing out, Harry, we've been training for, you know, months now. What was the point of all that? Yeah. Was that just simply an exercise in futility unless we're actually going to use these skills? We're here to help. 
And then Luna, you know, mad seer that she is, identifying the Thestrals, seeing how they can help, and casually just pointing out that, well, no, we're in on this, there's nothing you can do about it, let's all have fun. They, they, have, they have, by force of will and character and effort, made themselves central to the plot, and that should be rewarded. All right, secondary characters, writ large, for the win, <laughs> yes. Remind me, there is, a, there is a division of the ministry that specifically deals with, pardon me, non-human relations or something along those lines, right? Yes. Because uh, Umbridge, for obvious and good reasons, doesn't seem at all affiliated with that group, but I'd be curious to know a little bit more about what degree of diplomatic connection is maintained with the centaur community that umbridge is you know trying to argue that they live on this land at the ministry's you know pleasure yeah whereas the centaurs are the view that no it's ours we've taken it and you try to tell us how we use it so specifically and this is given our conversation around this this is interesting verbiage um the name of that department is the department for the regulation and control of magical creatures and there is (coughs) Oh, this is really funny. Hold on. There is specifically a centaur liaison office, though centaurs, being isolationists, have never interacted with the office since its creation. (laughs) That's a nice touch. I like that. Thus, being sent to the centaur office has become a euphemism at the ministry for those about to be fired. (laughs) (laughs) You don't get a performance improvement plan. You get sent to the centaur liaison office. Good lord. (laughs) That's actually very funny. No, that that that, that nice bit of world building there, J.K. Rowling. Yep. That, that's well done. Uh, do we have any... Is it gone into, or do you know... Do we know what Umbridge's background is in the ministry before she rose to the position of undersecretary? Like, what, what department was she affiliated before she rose to her current lofty post? Yeah, so um, we do, I think, know kind of her trajectory... Because uh, so, as you guys have noted, and I agree with, we've never seen her do field work, and she doesn't seem capable of it. Yeah, so when she left, so she had a sort of like meteoric rise, which is at the ministry, which is tracks frequently problematic. <laughs> uh, well, she did start her, pl- she was an intern at the Improper Use of Magic office. Hmm. And before she turned 30 she became head of the office uh okay so i hadn't read this before let me read you just read you a couple of paragraphs from umbridge's um please wiki because this actually we've been having conversations around this this entire book and bj i think this might Mm -hmm. be particularly interesting to you Dolores, being very opportunistic and power-hungry, was ashamed of her father, who was a low-level worker in the Department of Magical Maintenance, while she was seeking a professional career. Under her pressure, he retired early, and she promised him a small monthly allowance in exchange for quietly leaving the public site. From that point on, she lied about her family, claiming that she was a pure-blood rather than a half-blood. She eventually became senior undersecretary to the Minister of Magic and had a place the Wizard Gamut. Uh, whenever she was asked, usually by workmates who did not like her, are you related to that umbrage who used to mop the floors here? She would smile her sweetest laugh and deny any connection, claiming that her deceased father had been a distinguished member of the Wizengamut. Nasty things tended to happen to people who asked her about Orford or anything about which she did not like talking and people who wanted to remain on her good side pretended to believe her version of her ancestry. Hmm. Again, that fits. Yes. I'm trying to figure out where exactly. 
Okay, so that and that information does come from Rowling <clears throat> on the Wizarding World website. So it was kind of ancillary. Mm. It's not in any of the books, but like that is the back the backstory that she has created for her, uh, which I, I had not read that section before. It's actually interestingly in her, in the section about her ascension at the ministry. Um, so there you go. Nice. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Question about riding Thestrals. Uh-huh. Thestrals are invisible, except to people that have, you know, seen someone die. Correct. Presumably one does not become invisible when one sits on a Thestral. Nope. So they're just going to be looking like people are just hovering through the air, flying into the ministry? Correct. And in fact, several of the people who are going to be writing Thestrals, spoiler, have not seen someone die, and therefore can't see the Thestrals and have to ride them. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> it, it it's kind of... Hmm. It's, it's, it's both morose and macabre to think about what periods in history where there's been a lot more appreciation or acknowledgement about Thestrals. Yeah, like, that is In the aftermath of World War I, there were a lot more guides written to the subject of Thestrals in the UK. It, if you're using predator heat vision, you know, you can see Thestrals wandering about. Yes. They, this, is, this, is, this is only a shield against the visible spectrum of light. I think if you fl- threw a bag of flour at a Thestral... <laughs> You get a very pissed off Thestral. Indeed. <laughs> uh, all right. Best part of the episode. Spencer, are you ready? Um, chapter 34. Also relatively short, it appears, compared to the other ones. Yep. The Department of Mysteries. I don't know what is in Harry's hand, but there appear to be, he's appeared to be holding one of... And in purposefully innumerable, like, you know, end of Indiana Jones level of artifacts behind him. But he seems fascinated by this one in particular. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been fun, y'all. Yeah, till next time.